You're listening to Chris Scott on FM 105, Down Community Radio. Welcome to the final show in 2021. Where has that year gone? Well, you're tuned in to the Chris Scott Show on FM 105 Down Community Radio. Thank you for lending me your ears uh, tonight again and stay with me for the next hour. Background music comes from a recently released album titled Stormlight and the track titled in the background is The Western Line with such a unique sound. And I am privileged to speak to the composer Killalez Neil Foster, a musician, producer, music therapist, and the list goes on. Neil talks to me about his extensive music career to date uh, and when he had been playing with world-renowned orchestras all across the globe. Interspersed throughout the programme tonight, you will be treated to a number of extracts from Neil's compositions, and that includes a brief excerpt from the film Lord of the Rings, Helm's Deep, on which Neil played percussion. Neil coming up after this. Chatting with Chris on FM 105 Down Community Radio. Your station, your voice. This week we're back to Killalay and I'm speaking to Neil Foster. You may ask, who is Neil Foster? I would say there's a lot behind you, Neil. Welcome to the show. Hi, good to see you, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm going to say very complex because I've read your CV online. Irish composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist. And there's a list the length of your arm there, uh, including music therapy as well, Neil. Yeah, that's right. Maybe, maybe partly... Um difficult for me to settle to one thing I don't know whether that's a I think it's a strength increasingly I think it's a strength um it's not what they told me at school but yeah I I um, started off as a as a performer um working as a percussionist mainly percussionist and pianist pianist first was playing piano and bars and then I trained as a percussionist and played a lot with orchestras over the the following years but at the same time and in parallel I was I was tended to be doing a lot of community music work where I was working with marginalised groups of people, running music groups, co-running music groups and projects um, when I wasn't sort of on stage in a bow tie. And I really, really loved that work and eventually I wanted to, to go the full, the, full, the full nine yards with that and, and train as a music therapist, which is a full-time, pretty intensive training, pretty painful but also really rewarding training, which kind of, of course, opened up all my questions about my own trauma um, took me on a journey into my own mental health and how to kind of heal myself as well which was um, which is still ongoing but gave me huge privilege and and amazing opportunities to work with some incredible people in in schools and prisons and in hospitals to have some of the peak musical experiences in my life outside of you know concert halls played in concert halls uh, um, and like played in the Royal Albert Hall and and in the concert goodbye in Amsterdam and different sort of revered concert halls but some of my peak musical experience I would say have been in little side rooms in hospitals and working with incredible people courageous people in music therapy Neil that's a very broad brush stroke of your life to date but you know that let's let's go back and pick pick at some of that if you don't mind you you're from where East Belfast originally yeah so I was um grew up in East Belfast and family moved to Hollywood when I was about 11 um yeah so that's where I'm I'm from born in the early 70s 
in, in Belfast, yeah. So music, obviously, this is your, that, it's the soul, it's your, it's your soul, but y where did that first start for you? Right, so when I was, so before I was born, um, my mum was singing all the time, so I think I was uh, exposed to music before I was born um, a lot. So just imagine if, you're, if your mum's a singer and you're in there, you're going to be wrapped up in music all the time. Whether you like it or not. No, but it was, it was always around the house. I, there were, my grandparents and my mum's side were um, really keen on music as well. They used to have musical evenings uh, and my granddad played the violin. My mum, as I said, a singer and also a piano teacher. So there's always music in the house, I suppose. But I, but I um, had piano lessons when I was quite young and didn't always really enjoy it. It felt like it was, you know, it was being kind of pushed through exercises and scales and arpeggios and all felt a bit dry and it wasn't really my music. And, but I, you know, did it and I got my grade exams and I was, had to be kind of coaxed quite forcefully through that. But I also, I was lucky at school, I ended up getting playing. Once I knew what music I was into, I, was, I was started to play a lot by ear. I probably, I played a lot by ear before I ever had a music lesson, probably from before I can remember. And then I ended up kind of playing drums and bands and stuff as well, so drums and piano, um, doing a bit of singing and songwriting along the way. Choirs, you know, and things, and then youth concert band and youth training orchestra and all of that, the School of Music in Belfast and Donegal Pass. Just, I suppose, fell into it, being lucky enough to have the opportunity and everything, to have lessons and to, have to go and do those things. Do you not remember at school in that sort of 70s, 80s period that there was always a career teacher and there was always a careers room, no matter what school you went to? Yeah. And I always remember those lists of yellow leaflets and some would have been a, a, like a pilot or a BBC oh, producer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, at that stage, what, what was your intention then? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one because I um, had no idea, right? I had no idea what I wanted to be, but because music was like something that was always around, I never thought of it as a career. Yeah. It was just like the water you're swimming in you know my my grandfather my mum's side was a really really interesting guy who's a real uh bit of a polymath you know he taught himself cantonese and took the family to live in hong kong before i was born played in the hong kong philharmonic as a violinist was really keen into geology and archaeology and all sorts and so he used to kind of like give me all these insights and ideas and inspirations and then i at different times i wanted to be an archaeologist and and, and all sorts you know like paleontologist and all these clever sounding words when you're a kid and you think oh that sounds really clever that's what I want to do and then when I got to um choosing GCSEs right you remember yeah. that interview yeah with the careers guy and I had my subject choices and I remember um I remember the teacher in question he was a geography teacher and he said why is music not on the list and I said I don't know and he said well but you got like 98 percent in third year music so why is it not on the list I'm still thinking where did the other two percent go <laughs> no but um but it wasn't on the list I hadn't thought of it as like a school thing yeah. or a career thing but um it went on the list anyway and then I but you know I had I had a I had an instrumental music teacher who wasn't really very encouraging either like I decided at one point I was going to go to music college conservatoire whatever I kind of had to make my own decision that that was what I wanted to do and I think, I think it was partly, this is going to sound a bit weird, but it was partly that everything, everything else about school had kind of just left me cold, really, uh, in the sense that I was really bored. 
by almost everything else at school and almost every teacher didn't feel like I really connected with much other than, you know, my friends and socially and, and music and that was about it. Neil, had you siblings? Yep. So two two brothers and a sister. Are they musically orientated? Uh, or what, what, was there a competitiveness there? All of them, but um, two of them. Uh, my my youngest brother Scott, who who now lives in the Far East, he's he's a really gifted musician. My sister as well, a uh, singer for many many years in bands and singing all around the country. Really gifted singer still. My brother took on the family business, which is furniture removals, but he's actually got a really nice singing voice too. He won't tell you, but um, he does. So we, we all, we've all got music in us, loads yeah. of music in us, yeah. And there was a bit of a competitiveness, I suppose, yeah. But um, I was the oldest. I don't know if I felt that competitive with my siblings, but I just, you know, I just wanted to get get on and get out of there. So you I mean, get away, I mean, get away from Belfast at the time, I think, you know, just... Yeah. So you became a percussionist. Now that probably wouldn't be on the on the list anywhere. Uh, you know, you'll hear cellos and violins and all those other mainstream. I'm going to say mainstream in the orchestra, but yeah. the percussionist. It's like all those pop bands. He's the guy at the back, and nobody ever, yeah. you know, takes any notice of. Yeah, he's the guy sitting there, not doing very much some of the time. <laughs> no, um, and I was like, oh, that sounds like a good gig. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I took it into. I, I was like, you know, one of those um, hyperactive kids. The, these days I would have got a diagnosis at school of ADHD or ADD. Right. Back then I'm just tapping everything and I've just got these like uh, tappy fingers and feet. Eventually my folks bought me a drum kit just to, I don't know, calm me down. And then I, I, I kind of took classical percussion lessons, which actually at the time wasn't that inspiring but it took me down a path to sort of a classical music training drums I was playing drums in bands though and then i ended up playing a lot of tuned percussion instruments you know so xylophone marimba vibraphone those instruments kind of bring the piano and percussion together as well you know for me and then on into music college and tons and tons of training and experience just playing orchestral repertoire playing in brass bands brass band contests and stuff you know Loads of drums, snare drum, big cymbal parts, bass drum, all of that. Big sounds. Triangle, mustn't overlook the triangle. Uh, and all the tuned percussion. And I loved it all. So uh, ended up uh, coming out of music college and then playing in orchestras, freelance, and uh, with different orchestras around the place. Self-support, you were a professional then at that stage? Yeah, I was really lucky when I was still at college. I was in my second year at college, so I was probably only 19. I started getting quite big in, uh, gigs with professional orchestras in Scotland and playing principal percussion with them and recording and stuff. And I look back on some of those recording sessions and stuff, think, why was I not terrified? And you know, when you're 19 and you don't know, you don't know that you should be scared, so you're just, you're just doing what you do. And uh, I was really lucky, you know, have, have, have all those opportunities. So I was probably I was playing professionally from then, from when I was 19. I did a postgraduate year in Amsterdam after I finished conservatoire in Glasgow and then um, moved to London, managed to get an introduction to the principal of the BBC Symphony Orchestra there and ended up doing a lot of work with them and, and, and other orchestras around London. But that was the sort of mainstay of my work for a while, doing a lot of work at the proms and stuff. You know, mm -hmm. they'd be doing doing that all the time through the summer, three months. 
career highlights at that time? I mean, what what would be up there, Neil, for you? You know, when you look back. Oh, there are a few. I think like the, my first ever professional symphony orchestra engagement when I was nineteen. I was playing with the Scottish National Orchestra. The conductor called Sir Alexander Gibson, who isn't around anymore, but he was a kind of someone really revered, really top conductor. And um, I was playing a piece by Benjamin Britten called uh, Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. It's got brilliant percussion parts all through for the whole section. Everybody in the section has solo stuff to play. And this is my first first gig, and I'll never forget it. The orchestra had this interesting kind of um, characteristic whereby they'd play after the conductor's downbeats. The conductor would do his downbeat, then there'd be this kind of breath, and the orchestra would come in as one, 90 players, because they sort of breathed together. Mm-hmm. They played together for so long. But I was brand new coming into this, and I remember hitting that first bass drum note with a whole orchestra coming together. Somehow I found the note, because I just let go and I breathed with that orchestra. And I, and I didn't know that an, an, a musical organism of 90 people breathed together like that and I you know felt the shivers you know like something's happened that's way bigger than me here and I just kind of tuned into it and there I was playing um the biggest drum in the orchestra wow age 19 with this fantastic symphony orchestra at that time totally at the top of their game so so that's one another one is I studied in Amsterdam for the year I was lucky enough to get some work playing um with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra who you know, one of the best orchestras in the world, certainly still one of the top three or four in Europe, along with Vienna and Berlin. But there I was playing snare drum in the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra with Maris Janssens conducting the late Maris Janssens and, and Shostakovich. Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad Symphony, where there's this big, there's this march and three snare drums layer up and this march just builds and builds. But the, um, the Siege of Leningrad. That's another Goosebumps moment, mm-hmm. playing in that incredible concert hall, just extraordinary acoustic, extraordinary orchestra. Never heard an orchestra like that before. The sound of the strings in that room, woodwind and brass, just another level of, of awakening for me, that music can sound like that, and you're, you're sitting in the middle of it. I think, I guess, playing with the BBC Symphony Orchestra on stage at the Royal Festival Hall in London, playing Alpine Symphony, Richard Strauss' piece, incredible piece of music just being in the middle of that you know a lot of the time as a percussionist it's true you're counting bars you're waiting for the next thing you're gonna have to do might be 15 minutes down the line just look calm don't look bored breathe but (laughs) no it's just you're you're in the middle of that sound you know um I'm going to ask you a strange question, Neil. Any boo-boos? Any major boo-boos in the middle of it? You may not want this to go out in our course, but, you know... Never. Never. No, I mean, of course, yeah. (laughs) But, I mean... There's a point why I'm asking you this, because we're going to come to what what you're doing now. Is there a right way or a wrong way to to music? But, do you know, were there moments where you went, oops? Yes. (laughs) So, like, there's there's the one whereby, um, you know, I'm not alone, everybody's done it. There's the one whereby you're playing a piece... There's a particular Von, Will- Von Williams symphony. I think it was the fifth symphony. Let's, let's say, I can't remember if it's that one, but let's say the piece is 40 minutes long and you might have two entries in the whole symphony. Maybe there's a bass drum. There's a bit of bass drum somewhere, you know, quietly. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes or half an hour in, somewhere in the second movement. You're kind of lost in the music and the sound of the whole orchestra and the sound of the symphony and you gradually come to your senses and realise that that moment has gone. <laughs> and you didn't play it 
But that's okay. It happens. Yeah. No payback at that week. Well, you know, just keep quiet and uh, don't say anything. Yeah. Until now. I've said it now. But yeah. But I mean, we're, we're all human. And, that, and that, 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 that's a point. Chatting with Chris on FM 105 Down Community Radio. Your station, your voice. Life progressed. I, I think you actually met your wife uh, in, in one of the orchestras you were telling me as well. Yes, actually, we met when we were both working for the Ulster Orchestra. So funnily enough, at the time, we were both living in London, but we were unknown to each other. London being a big place, but we were both engaged separately to come over to Belfast and work because they needed a couple of extra percussionists and they needed a harpist. And my wife's a harpist. So, yes, we were introduced by... A percussionist friend of mine who knew Emma from another orchestra that he'd worked in and met her. We met in Morrison's Bar over a pint <laughs> at lunchtime one cold January day. Yeah, and uh, that was 22 years ago. And Emma subsequently got the principal harp job with the Royal Opera, Covent Garden. She's still working there. Yes, yeah, so now we have this sort of slightly peripatetic life where Emma has a contract to work at the Royal Opera some of the time. Some of the time she's here in Killalay when she's not doing that. Yeah, it's working pretty well at the moment. So, Neil, you, you've been at the uh, the higher echelons of the, the music industry and, and within the classical world. So what happened? There was a big change. Right. We're now sitting in Killalay now. So what, what has happened? Yeah, it's funny. I, I am trying to pin down where things really changed for me, but I, I, I think I started to... I'd say I started to get a bit jaded not that I didn't I, I had such as we as we've discussed some really peak experiences like I miss playing in orchestras it's an incredible thing but I I think I wanted to explore other avenues I wanted to explore other avenues and one of the things that was calling me was music therapy to say it was music therapy is is another way of saying that I wanted to see what happened if I opened up this whole music thing to see what could be created in other ways apart from playing someone else's music. That's, that's sort of decreed. And I was highly trained and was able to do that, and it was great. But I, I, um, was still, I still had this parallel career track where I was doing community music projects with um, groups of people who might not have the chance to play in orchestras or might not otherwise have the chance to learn music, you know, people with certain disabilities. Or I, I remember running workshops for people who were... Who, who, for, for deaf children or, you know... Um, adults with mental health issues that meant that they were isolated people were sort of isolated from this kind of mainstream you know musical opportunity I was lucky enough to get and I was doing this stuff and then I ended up getting a kind of part-time job as a classroom assistant in a big comprehensive school in East London and it was like parallel so some of the time I'd be I'd be I'd be working in this this school um, as a classroom assistant on minimum wage and then in the evening I might be running up to the Royal Festival Hall and putting the bow tie on and playing with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and I had these two things going on at the same time which is really brilliant actually because <laughs> you know the, the school I was working with in East London was this big messy crazy comp, comp full of, you know with a thousand kids um, from you know 35 different countries you know every language spoken in this school is brilliant it was like so diverse and everything you know that was brilliant about living in London yeah I don't know I just I was meeting such interesting people I would say I say interesting people but you know life had given them a diagnosis of something or other and I recognized myself in that a little bit sometimes but you know 
they were denied opportunities that I'd had as well, and and also, I just had a great, such a great time with with these working with people with such creative spirit, and I was starting to feel like playing in orchestras was coming becoming a little bit, bit suffocating for me, and I wanted I wanted to go I wanted to kind of um, get out there and do that, so I, I trained as a music therapist then to kind of to really see what that was about, and I didn't really know until I started the training when people say probably better not to know <laughs> in a way training as a music therapist turned everything upside down for me in terms of being a musician turned everything upside down but also put some things back in the rightful place in, in the sense that music is not just about entertaining people not just about being highly trained and having a brilliant technique and not just about playing other people's music but it's fundamentally about something being something that connects people and brings them together empowers them, inspires them, uh, gives them a means by which to create and express themselves, to be healthy, to be alive, and but most importantly empowered and connected, not isolated but connected. That's, that's why I needed to head in that direction, you know, and, and classical music was a double-edged sword in a way, like, I, I mean, or a double-sided coin, if that's a better analogy, because... Um, there's such a culture of perfection and driving oneself to achieve a perfection which is dictated from outside of oneself, right? I'm not saying that I'm not great, grateful for the opportunities it afforded me and that, that musical training has given me such a skill set for life and for my enjoyment too, but it's a double-edged thing. In music therapy training, one's expert musicianship is kind of dismantled a little bit and then rewired. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean that being a clever musician in a room with someone who didn't have the power of speech and had a profound physical disability, that person didn't need me to be a clever musician in the room with them. That's the last thing she needed. And I learned this in my first year of training with the young woman in question who taught me more than I can say. She needed someone to just shut up and accompany her and 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 listen and drop all the cleverness and drop all the expertise and come back to something really fundamental you know which is more akin to what happens whenever people who don't have a musical training sit down and just find rhythm as if we just woke up today and we didn't know what music was and we're just going to find a rhythm together you know find a shared pulse and a couple of sounds that we can use to communicate and be together in a groove so i had to strip away do you know all of that veneer? You yeah. know all of that musical yeah. cleverness? Yeah. Strip it all away. No, not that it's not needed. Just put it away for now and, then, <laughs> and get back to that. And that happened in a really sort of visceral way because I, when I was approaching my end, the end of, of the first year of music therapy training, I actually broke my arm. Broke my arm playing football at the weekend and I couldn't play the piano the way I had been. By fortune or just circumstance or accident, I, it completely freed me up and, and everything changed. So the next sessions I had with, with, with the young woman I was working with, it, it, this was my kind of first year practical, you know, level training. I only had my left hand and suddenly I was actually making music with her because, because physically I didn't have this clever you know, these clever two hands to, to do my thing. So in a way, it's just the, the process I alluded to being a painful one is that our, our expertise is 
almost always in some way a healthy defense you know we're experts at something it gives us a sense of value it gives us a sense of worth and we've trained hard to have all these skills and what i had to learn to do was to kind of totally drop all that and be completely authentic and simplify everything right down to the bare bones of of getting getting one's hands dirty in the kind of raw in the moment musicking mm-hmm. with someone which might be just finding a common beat but there's absolute joy and earthiness in that then that's what's needed you know that's cuts through the isolation and none of my none of my years of conservatoire training were gonna do that there but it, but they were part it was part of the journey i had I had needed that journey to get to that point you developed the music therapy but what is interesting neil you started well i assume then you started your own compositions you came away from the norm you know you would have been reading score sheets and and and, and going by you you were controlled almost within within the environment that you worked in you know going back to those early years had you written your own pieces as well you probably did for music exams and things like that and then went into con- some type of conformity to come out of that again and then yeah. started experimenting yourself is that is that is that the pattern? Is that is that what happened? Yeah, that's a good question. I, and we just wouldn't say that I was like controlled by the environment, but I know what you mean. I think it's like, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, it just wasn't such a space for me in that role to yeah. express my unique kind of musicality. But on the other hand, like playing percussion was an utter joy, and it still is. And I do a lot more. Um, it's a lot more African drumming now, which is oh, another okay. another question, yeah, yeah, yeah. another thing. But um, but yeah, so I did. I wrote a few things, you know, GCSE music, you know, some concert, but nothing there at school ever really was celebrated or anything. Like you know, it wasn't. It was a, it was a bit like to pass GCSE music, you had to kind of tick the GCSE boxes. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a great. There, there wasn't that much space really for exploration, actually. On the side, while I was was at school, though not part of school music, I did make a wee album with a friend, and we recorded it in a four-track tape. I still have it somewhere, but um, staying under lock and key. (laughs) We're not getting access to that. It's um, for my ears only. Then, yes, uh, you're 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 quite right in a way. I I suppose I kind of put that aside. You know, my own personal composing while while I'm on this on this track of playing with orchestras and stuff, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, music therapy, you're right, really started to unlock stuff for me. It was the beginning of quite a healing process and quite, kind of a, quite, kind of a, quite a wake-up call as well because I, I had never really looked at my own trauma particularly. Probably like most people, I, I said, I'm, I'm okay, you know, I'm getting by. and I, yeah. <laughs> In my 20s, probably looking back now, yeah, I'm drinking a lot suspiciously for someone who's okay you know that kind of thing yeah. i'm self-medicating quite a lot i have problems relating to people sometimes which isn't maybe healthy but i can see that now you know i didn't necessarily see it at the time but one of the um requirements for music therapy training was that we all uh all of the students on the course had to be entering into a process of their own psychotherapy with a registered psychotherapist once that got underway yeah of course things started to really open up for me and um in in quite a difficult way quite a quite a frightening way also really difficult for emma because emma was not having therapy 
and yet I was kind of changing and, and this difficult stuff was coming up for me. It was hard for her because I had a lot of support around me in terms of the training course. Only six students per year at that time and lots of expertise around us, lots of therapists kind of supporting us, looking out for us. So I had a lot of support um, to get through it. But yet coming out, coming out of that and then in, in the years following the training, I started writing a lot of stuff down, you know, keeping a lot of notebooks, just writing stream of consciousness stuff in, in books and getting things out of myself, you know, expressing expressing what's in me, kind of uh, feeling increasingly safe enough to do that and, and look at what came out, you know, and having the therapist there weekly to take stuff to. And then songwriting kind of happened as a natural consequence, you know, because I'm writing stuff down, started to realise that I had, I was able to put words together in quite a nice way and then mm. Yeah, putting song structures together with piano and guitar and writing songs, and that's how that started. And then a bit later, having moved back here to Killalay, starting to experiment much more with electronic music and coming back to keyboard as much as percussion as a primary means, and then doing a lot of field recording and sound sampling and just putting together the different sonic parts of me and parts of my life and my environment, what I'm hearing what I'm feeling, putting that all in a kind of pot in a way and sort of boiling it down, which is which is really exciting to me because I suppose as I'm a process of waking up and becoming much more self-aware that came out of the kind of trauma awareness and that healing process. So I'm becoming much more aware of how much I live through my ears and how that has implications for how I take care of myself, what environment I need to thrive in. It does for all of us, doesn't it? Um, how, we, how we take things in, how we sense things, and what kind of environment we need to feel safe in, to feel comfortable in, to be able to be clear-headed and hear, hear and see. Yeah, yeah. natural process coming out, of, coming out of the music therapy sort of transformation for me, as well as the training to work with other people and then of course I, I was actually following the training I should say I'm, I'm working with, with all kinds of amazing people through this time young people and adults in different settings um, hospitals and critical care units and in, in end of life uh, care sometimes and I spent a few years working with armed services veterans with PTSD um, just learning loads and loads from these these people and the way that they would find resources to express themselves. So it's really, you know, music therapist and the person you're working with, you know, it's like implies expertise. And of course, there is an expertise in training. But for me, I've experienced it so much over the years about, of learning from other people, learning from the people I'm working with and it being very much a two way process, mm -hmm. which I think is important because that's what that's where you want to be is on sitting alongside someone on an equal footing, which is why a music therapist isn't a teacher with a cup of tea or anything like that, but someone who sits alongside as a, as a, as a fellow, you know, as a, as a co-creator, collaborator. An example there you gave was a PTSD, so someone who's been through immensely traumatic incidents in his life and, and, and things start to haunt him again, you, you know, later on down the line. Without going too much detail, but how do you even start that with someone? Do you know they, they're coming to you knowing that you're a music therapist? What's your first? What's your first move? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. It's an always an open question. No matter how I've been doing 
doing this work for 15 years now and it's always an open question anytime I meet somebody for the first time and the really important thing is to be completely open and and to have ideas but not to know necessarily and to let the moment kind of guide you you really trust your intuition and trust in that intuition becomes of course more easier with experience comes easier to say I don't know how we're going to start but of course you've prepared the ground of course and that's the training too so you've got everything you need on the ground to get started an interesting thing that happened when I very first started working at combat stress in Surrey with these veterans something that I had partly foreseen but I'd maybe underestimated its impact when I walked into that unit to work with it was almost almost all men that I worked with there veterans of the Falklands veterans um, some young vets from Afghanistan uh, from the fir- from both Gulf Wars as well I was working with some really young lads and some that had been in the Falklands and there was, there was at least one veteran of the, the Second World War there um, and importantly many, many veterans of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It's the first thing that happened when I walked into that building and the guys were very chatty, some of them, and um, one guy said hello to me and greeted me and as soon as I responded, he said, he kind of froze when he heard my accent. And my accent's not strong, but I mean, it's, he, yeah. he froze and he said, so, so which part of Belfast are you from? And immediately, now the group hasn't started yet, I'm just like getting taken round on an induction and immediately the trauma's right wide open. And because it triggered him immediately, my accent. Uh, and there we were, right right straight in. We had a conversation, but yeah, I, I, I mean, and, and I felt uncomfortable too. So, well, hang on, you know, he, he really wanted to know my address. It was really important, what number, what street. And of course I understood that and thought about that a lot since you know, close to close to then, with with my supervisor, he he needed to know where exactly where, because that was his trauma, and exactly which side of time. So yeah, that that was that was a really useful start, a really important start. Doing that work opened up a lot of stuff for me as well, of course. That I was I'd started to address and was working on, but you know, it's an ongoing process. Because it was really important to me when I was growing up to know where people were from as well and which side of town and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But the music therapy session itself was a case of having having a lot of instruments around. And for these men it was really important that we had it in a certain kind of place. The music group wasn't in a small room with a closed door, and this was important. It was part of a big space which was kind of open plan and in the summertime doors would be open to the outside and away over there there was there were, there were lots of easels and art making facilities and there was beautiful art on the walls there was creative writing on the walls there were the kind of you know printed poems and bits of creative writing that um, people had done there was a woodwork area but it was big and open plan and then it was an L shape so in the kind of the bottom part of the L we just there was a TV and some comfy chairs and we set up the music group in there. Because what was really important before anything started musically was that the men could come into this room and feel like they could get out again. And that they could come into the room and feel like they could back off if they needed to and get away from the group. Or that they could be 20 yards away and listen and check out the group without being too close to the group. 
and this was a really helpful colleague there, an occupational therapist who'd been working there for a long time, and, and we thought about that a lot, you know, how the group's set up. So before we even start, is this a, is this a group set up that these guys are even going to come into? Like, are they even going to feel safe enough to approach? So really, really open and inviting and informal, and so important that it's informal. And, and me kind of being very aware that if someone's over there, with his back to the group, he's, he's likely listening. And often, you know, and we, we do this six-week blocks of work because the guys in the centre were on a six-week rehab, so it was residential, and they'd have other therapies too as part of that. And sometimes it would be week three or four before a certain person approached the group and joined in. Or maybe somebody would be in the group for four or five weeks before they picked up an instrument and played it. It's really important to make space for that and totally accept that. You might find that in week one, nothing much happens. Or that in week one, you're just kind of having a chat with a couple of people. You might tinkle a little bit. Or, but in actual fact, what happened a lot was that somebody would say, oh, I play a guitar, I play a guitar a little bit. Or I used to learn bass. Or I had drum lessons once. And then you've got a djembe there or something, you've got some hand drums. It, it actually wasn't long before stuff was happening. It was sort of a, a real relief for the guys uh, and, and it was a real contrast from the sort of talking therapy model that was at the centre of their rehab, which was like CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. But in that therapy, they were asked to talk about their trauma. And so in music therapy, they were free mm. to play and to share songs or song lyrics or just listen to music or do some drumming. Didn't have to talk about the trauma. Because you don't have to talk about the trauma all the time to heal the trauma. How we express ourselves primarily isn't just in words. Before we could speak, we were, we were pure musical beings. We were expressing ourselves through movement and sound. It's our primary language. Um, and also, one of the things I've become really interested in working with men, and this isn't, this isn't a fixed stereotype, it's just an observation in myself as well as a man, is that sometimes we express ourselves much more easily without words. And so often this kind of thing would happen. I would meet somebody who would approach the group and we'd get chatting and he might say, have you heard such and such a song? And we wouldn't talk about trauma or PTSD all day, but he would say, have you heard such and such a song? And I would say, oh, no, I don't know that one. I'll go and have a listen. And then I'd get home and I'd listen to the song. Is the song, there's a song I've got in mind, actually. It's by Steve Earle, I think, and it's Copperhead Road. Yeah. Do you know that? So this is one of the moments that stands out. This is 10, 12 years ago. But it stands out because when I got home, because we were chatty and, and nothing was mentioned about trauma, but when I got home and read the lyrics to Copperhead Road, Dan was thinking about trauma. But he, he didn't tell me about the trauma by me, me having the white coat on and saying, now tell me about your trauma. Steve Earle held it for him. And, and, and the music was the bridge between his trauma and, and me. he could communicate his trauma by telling me. Consciously or unconsciously, he told me, told me something really important. So yeah, that kind of thing would happen all the time. And you see all the time, I'm already five years out of music therapy training and every day I'm learning about how music can be that bridge uh, for people to express and share what's most deeply important or, or tell me something of their trauma without having so, so too often in our culture we, we shine this fluorescent light on everything analyze it and say you have to 
tick boxes A, B, C and D in terms of treatment or in order to, to heal you have to look directly at the thing but that's not the way we operate as human beings we use the arts which is why the arts are so fundamental to us even though they're increasingly woefully neglected in our education system so, so that was um, really really flexible is the answer you know you've got you've got instruments set up and you're ready for anything to happen or nothing to happen you know maybe in the first session nobody comes but that's fine because you know the important thing is that you're there and the instruments are there and they'll be noticed you say to yourself we've got a six-week program if it takes six weeks for anybody to come that's fine because those five weeks where you're there are, are infinitely valuable because you're sitting there holding a space for people to come into and if they don't feel ready to you're also saying I, I completely accept however long it takes you Neil, you're involved locally here at the minute. Uh, you're in the middle of a, a group in Killalay here. Tell us a little about the background there. Yeah, so, so this is really, really exciting project for me, living as I do now in Killalay, sort of been here six years. And together with the Killalay Community Association, I applied for some funding to run a group for young people, a music therapy group. And we, we got some funding to do that. And we're running, running the group at the Hans Sloan Centre. And the money is actually, the funding is actually from the Department of Justice. It's called Assets Recovery. Basically, the Department of Justice recovers assets from the proceeds of organized crime and then offers that back for community projects. So this comes up as funding that communities can apply for to run projects. To give young people an, an outlet to create, to build connections, to be heard and accepted, to express themselves... Um, to learn musical skills, you know, develop and celebrate creative strengths, you know, and, and, and so that is underway. We started not so long ago. We've, it's going really, really well. So really happy with the way it's going. Um, I have a fantastic co-facilitator in Connell Montgomery, a local musician and friend who's the perfect guy to be running this kind of a project with. He's done so much of his own work he's someone that i met I, we just met a few weeks ago and we just hit it off really quickly and 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 he he is a, a great musician but also a great listener which is almost which is the bedrock of running a group like this to be a great listener uh, before any musical sound happens it's about it's, it's listening the, the sound part is the tip of the iceberg and below the waterline is listening <laughs> which i think is the the fundament of of musicianship anyway but yeah, so he, he's brilliant, and we have these, this great group of young people. It's really quite a diverse group as well, in terms of their backgrounds, just all kind of fairly local to Killalay. The funding has given us the opportunity to purchase some instruments and equipment for the community as well, which we have at the Hans Sloan Centre at our disposal. So yeah, it's going really well. I'm really excited about what the group are doing, and I'm especially excited to see some of the young people we're working with really grow in confidence already in their playing and start to feel more and more empowered within the group. You're so passionate about this is your whole life. This has culminated to where you are today. There's one thing we haven't spoken about. You briefly touched on field recordings and around the area here and doing your own music. You have 
a number of accolades under your, under your belt now, and, and no, no later there are very recently than BBC Six had featured some of your music. Now we haven't talked about any of that yet. What's going on? What, what what's going on with Neil Foster uh, when he goes out to the studio in in, a, in his back garden here? Because I've listened to some of those tracks and the ambience and those things are unbelievable. It's therapy in its own right. Some some of you know, all the tracks that you've produced, and I'm hearing that constantly from other people who have listened to these, and they can just go into a different plane with the music that you're now producing. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. But the music is always really, it's always really great to hear that they're being enjoyed and listened to and that people are immersing themselves in the sounds. Yeah, I, it is therapy for me. You know, that the studio at the back, uh, it's where I go to um, put things in order, you know? And what I mean by that is to put sounds in order that I want them, you know, which is what we do when we create, I suppose, is we take the things we love and we rearrange them into a pattern that makes us feel good. To do that with music and sound for me is a great joy. And I have so many, so many um, resources. I mean, technology affords mm. so many resources now to do that very, very easily. As I said earlier, maybe having possibly issues staying with one thing and <laughs> always being going off and doing something else. But it's always been music, of course, one way or another. And when I'm in the studio, I can engage that eclectic, sort of put lots of different things together and see what happens. The album that I released a few weeks ago, Stormlight, I was able to experiment with all kinds of different layers of sound and music. So I have the piano is usually central and I, I, I use kind of effects and delays and different things to kind of process pianos to make rhythmic layers out of pianos in different ways. And then... I'm working with electronic elements quite often, electronic music and kind of synths and stuff like that, analog drum machines, and, and using samples and field recordings and weaving them in. And for some reason, some of the tracks I wanted to hear a cello on as well. And I thought, well, cello and electronic aren't always thought of on the same page. But um, during the first lockdown, when I was in the thick of working on this album, I was able to connect with a cellist in South America, in wow. Venezuela. And... She ha has played three on three of the tracks on the album. Uh, really beautiful, elegant and eloquent, full-bodied solos on these tracks. This was all done remotely, so she recorded in her studio in Caracas and, and we sent tracks back and forward. So yeah, just, you know, experiment. I love experimenting. So to have Carolina from Caracas playing cello on the same track that has field recordings of birds recorded on Strangford Loch and and maybe as uh, another track which has contributions from a singer friend of mine who's in Mumbai and likewise recorded in her studio and sent we worked remotely and all of these things are the way that I draw connections for myself in terms of my own therapy my own passion my own joy you know I suppose to connect Mumbai with Killalay and Caracas and Gibbs Island you know mm. The sounds that I hear in the garden in springtime here on Shore Street, because uh, when I'm in my little studio at the back in, in spring, even if I've got the headphones on, I just I can hear the sparrows going, you know. I, I'm not the kind of um, composer that's going to get really annoyed about that. I'm the kind of composer that's going to take the headphones off, get, get a field recorder and, and, and record those guys, and then bring it back into the composition because the sparrows are in my garden they, they should be part of this piece you know 
and they're part of my sound world and they're part of my life and they're part of the the living air in which we live you know it's an unusual concept, isn't it? The, the, the way that you've, you've, you've done this. I mean, we're, we're now sitting today recording this in the middle of Storm Barra, and I have no doubt there's background noise in this, but it's yeah. still fascinating to yeah. listen to that wind whistling outside as, as we do today. But, do you know, you, you've brought in birdsong, you've brought in all those different sounds, uh, I, I mixed them together, and, and you've recorded those. When I write a song, if I write a song uh, and I put music to it, I can turn up tomorrow night and play that up in the Dufferin Bar here, or mm. your music is going to be slightly different. Mm. How do you ever reproduce that again? Is it recorded and that's it? You know, for me to bring you into a local venue here and say, okay, Neil, let's have a... You're going to have to go back to the electronic recording, possibly. Yeah. Do you know, is that a strange concept? Yeah, um, I suppose it's... it's. I know what you mean. I, I do... I do live performances occasionally, but they tend to take the for, more the form of a like an audiovisual performance stroke installation rather than if I was if I'm performing this album. I have thought it through a lot. I wasn't sure whether I would go down the road of trying to sort of tour this album or perform it. Um, and it is complicated. It mm-hmm. would be complicated to. I mean, I could. Um, there are quite a few orchestral elements in there as well as the field recordings, electronics, solo cello and. But yeah, how, I, how I've done it, I, I mean, it, at the launch, I presented it as a listening event. A lot of my tracks are, um, have been paired with visual content. So I, 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 I take bits of video and I make kind of visual loops and things, usually but not always nature-inspired or just um, movement, maybe a urban, urban, urban scenes as well and, and, and movement, people moving, and then just play around with that and put it together with the music. So you've got... Uh, the the sonic rhythms and the visual rhythms as well. So I've been I've been working a lot that way and experimenting with that and thinking thinking of it more as an immersive experience rather than a performer audience experience. So that it's something that people can come into and kind of bathe in, if that's the right way of putting it, to listen and absorb in a, in an intimate space. Most often, I feel it works well, but uh, and to to have the visuals there as well. It, it kind of inspire a dream state, which is what it does for me when I'm working. Kind of put myself in a bit of a waking trance. And, and that's a very uh, important state. And I think that's, that's the idea. Mm. And I'm also aware of, you know, in the wider context of being an artist in the current time, it's being an artist in any context, in any time is always in some, on some level a political decision if that's the right word maybe political's not the right word but i think for me i'm looking at how things are at the minute and going what do i need what do people need what's needed what what should an artist do and everybody answers that differently has to answer that differently for me what i need to do as an artist at the middle at the moment isn't to say what it is what rather than what it isn't is to create something that people can lose themselves in, that people can feel held by and, and feel safe within, if that makes sense, and feel maybe maybe there's, there's, a, there's an enlivening energy and a healing energy, and I don't know how it translates for other people because I can only talk about me, but it's, it is, that's more and more conscious for me. Why do I make this kind of art and not something else? 
And there's something about making instrumental music, whereas I used to write songs and perform songs, there's something about instrumental music and this kind of instrumental music that leaves space for people to weave their own story around it. I find it increasingly difficult to work with words. I don't know because they're too concrete or something. I've got some friends who are incredible songwriters and they can do it, but at the moment that's not where I want to be. Yeah. I know I've listened to a number of your tracks on the way to work in the mornings and I feel a better person for it because it takes me to a different plane, as I said earlier. Any any door knocks yet from any uh, filmmakers? Because that's where I see some of that music. You know, be listening to something, it's like Eno Morricone, or there, there, there's something there. Um, right. You know, where, you know, where you, have you, has anybody made any approaches on you yet? I mean, it lends itself that, that way in my mind. Gosh, that's lovely to, to hear you say that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, um, no, not yet, not yet. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, the thing is, I suppose that I'm aware. I've, you're not the first person to say that, and um, I'm often thinking visually and marrying that. I'm probably, and this might be, I don't know. I'm probably at a point in my life where I'm not. Maybe, maybe I'm not pushing myself out there as much as I would have 30 years ago if I was where I am now I'm I'm very very content to be working away and developing my practice so I suppose I'm not I I haven't put out too many feelers there yet but I but I am aware that people are hearing the music increasingly with this with this album it's got a lot more listeners than anything else I've done and that yeah people can you know come and knock the door if they want (laughs) but I've had some smaller commissions with filmmakers and done kind of short, shorter pieces, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Did something for the Mac last year with a filmmaker and a writer, and then a narrator. So four four artists. Um, really loved doing that, and then working on a, a film with a dancer. And there's kind of shorter pieces, you know, five minute pieces. But yeah, I mean, of course, it'd be a dream. I'd be lying if I said it wouldn't be a massive dream. At my my stage in my life to to have the dream of scoring a film one day. Yeah, gonna keep that flame alive. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure. To, I could talk to you all day. Unfortunately, we've only an hour for the program. Anyone who wants to get in touch or listen to your music, how do we do that? So the be- there are a few different ways you can do that. One is to if you go to my website, which is neilfostermusic.com, um, you'll find all the links in there. Um, you can listen on Bandcamp. Neil Foster Music will get you there and on Spotify and everywhere. But if you go to the website, you can find all the links uh, and Facebook too. Neil Foster Music. Yeah. Neil, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chris. Chatting with Chris on FM 105 Down Community Radio. Your station, your voice. Thank you once again to Neil Foster for his time in tonight's show. A very talented guy. And if you'd like to have a listen to his music, go to his website, neilfostermusic.com, or have a look at all those usual digital platforms out there, and you can download the music on those. And next week, the first programme of 2022, we have another exciting interview coming up on The Chris Scott Show. I'm in conversation with Graham Fenton, a lead singer from Matchbox in the 1970s and 1980s, and still on the go, and they had a massive hit of your member with Rockabilly Rebel in the UK charts. So do stay tuned. 
tuned in. Graham will be telling me all about his life story and an absolute gentleman and a pleasure to talk to him. So until then, stay safe, stay tuned in, and a happy new year, folks. You're listening to Chris Scott on FM 105, Down Community Radio.